0: What if you could get really good grief support for just $3 a month? If you're navigating life after loss, but are a little tight in the money department, consider becoming a patron of Coming Back on Patreon. Listeners who support this podcast on Patreon receive weekly grief journaling prompts released every Monday morning and a once a month private grief hangout with me. If you're looking for an easy, inexpensive way to stay in touch with your grief, become a patron now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Your monthly pledge helps me keep this podcast on the air and allows me to produce online courses, books, and very special grief experiences for grievers just like you. Get started now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. Today, I'm speaking with author and home cook Janet Rich Elsbach about her book Extra Helping, which is a beautiful deep dive into caring for others through food. We'll talk about why food politics have no place in the meal train, how to slow down and be more present as a caregiver, and how to shift from a place of resistance to a place of receiving. I'm Shelby Frasithia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Janet Rich Elsbach is an author and home cook with three very lovely children. Her chief interests in life include, but are not limited to... What her family will have for dinner tonight, what her family will have for dinner tomorrow night, whether her children are rested, fed, encouraged, and aware, getting out of the grocery store with as much dignity and as little plastic as possible, assessing the real chances that we the people will come to our senses in time to save the bees, the oceans, and the last vestiges of true democracy, and the very powerful and inspiring ways that all of these things connect. You can find out more about Janet and her work, as well as some really easy and heartwarming recipes at her website, com. Grief growers, I am so excited to introduce you to Janet Rich Alsbach because her book, Extra Helping, tackles a topic or an emerging a, a of topics that I have not yet encountered, and that is grief. And food, which is funny that there's not more literature on grief and food because if we're living, we're eating. And if we're grieving, we're probably also eating because we're still <laughs> alive while we're grieving. And, and reading her book is just such a powerful commentary on what it means to be fed by people who truly care for you. And as I was reading, I was literally suspended in this world where caring and love and really masterful attention was given through cooking, baking, and serving, and like supplying food, whether it be through meal trains or otherwise. And I know we're going to go in so many different directions in this conversation, but Janet, I want to start off um, talking about your journey with your sister and being a caregiver to her, as well as what it's like to no longer need to be a caregiver after somebody
1: dies. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. and. Yeah, that, that's an interesting place to start because to me, that was where I got my fullest immersion in what I kind of call the round robin of, of caregiving, where you are caregiving and then also must, by necessity, be on the receiving end of care from someone else in order to make that possible. Um, so that was a, a pretty deep immersion in that for just about two years.
0: And I love this visual that you use in the book about the, the jazz square where person A can <laughs> caregive person B because person C said they were going to pick up person A's kids and they could do that because person D is taking over their shift at work or something. And so there was really this artful a kind of chain reaction visual that I got in my head from that.
1: Yeah, I love that idea of it, you know, how it comes across or how it lands for people because it really was, um, like I said, it was a real just a crash course in the, It's not a unidirectional flow. Um, even right when you're in it, you must be receiving in order to give. And also I really learned hard the lesson that it all comes around eventually. So there's that um, cyclical um, back scratching circle that happens right in the situation. And also just a, real faith uh, lesson. And eventually, if you have received, you will be on the giving end and vice versa. And um, I had spent more time probably leading up to that on the caregiving end. Um, And it was really powerful to learn more about receiving, because there's all kinds of ideas you develop about what's useful and what's helpful and um, what's possible. And then, when you have to receive, you get a whole different window into how you've been offering. Um, so it was a really it was a really uh, compelling education in a lot of ways for me, both as a caregiver and as someone who was receiving. I did a lot of traveling when she was ill, and so I was away from home really for the first time um, with my kids at home. And there, that just created a dependence on the kindness of others because I just wasn't there. Um, and that that give and take was really, um, it's, it's part of what I remember the most fiercely from that time.
0: I think there's a lot of, hmm, the phrase that's coming to me right now is resistance to receiving because there's oh, a narrative yeah. of if I'm receiving, I must be, weak or incapable or not strong right now or if I'm receiving right now I'm going to be receiving forever like I will be in this state of of weakness inability etc etc in perpetuity and what if, what if
1: uh, yeah and what if people knew from this
0: I had to knew? receive right now so I wonder if you can give us like a little um like receiving one hundred and one, like can take us to school a little <laughs> bit on how to sh- like gear shift. I get like a visual of, of shifting in a car, of uh, from a giving role constantly output to sitting back, sitting down, and being served and yeah. cared for by others.
1: Well, I think there were two factors that really um, came clear for me. One is um, if you can, if you are struggling to receive a good uh, kind of sense memory to call up is the total satisfaction in every way that you have felt offering what was necessary to someone who is in need. Just when you get it right, when you do the thing that really shifts the balance for somebody else, it's, it's, there's a level of satisfaction, at least for me, like, oh, you know, that was great. When you're receiving, you're offering that to somebody else. So it helps me get out of the headspace of I'm burdening this person or I'm putting them out in some way or, you know, they're asking them to do something that doesn't, you know, that's uncomfortable for them. It helps me so much to remember, like when you've brought the food or done the laundry or whatever it is, and you can see that it's made a difference for somebody else, it's so satisfying. So you're really offering the other person. Um, something really valuable when you let them step up for you. And that's been really, that's, that's one that I've learned over and over and over again. And each time it lands a little better for me is that it's really, there's, it's not just a, like a quid pro quo karmic balance. I'm helping now and someday I'll be helped or I'm being helped now and someday I'll help, which is also Mm. a factor, but there's a real exchange, like a real human, something so valuable is exchanged when you let somebody help because if they're if they love you enough to be in the periphery and offering they want to be useful and so you're really giving them something terrifically important by giving them something to do and giving them information about how to do it you know in a way that would actually be helpful for you so that's been that's been a huge part of it for me and then there is that kind of more meta um just the bigger human exchange, round robin, pay it forward kind of quality, where um, offering and receiving all—I really feel they all just balance out by the end of you know <laughs> by the end of the accounting period. <laughs> that. Oh, I like um, how you phrase that. You know, it isn't so much like I pick up—I pick up your kids, so then you have to pick up my kids. It's—it's it's, I pick up your kids, and then someday down the line, you may pick up somebody else's. And you know it—it it, it doesn't necessarily always even out one to one in between two humans. Although I do believe that that happens too, um, but there is this kind of karmic balance that, that gets addressed.
0: Yeah, and, and um, I love how you phrase that because it takes the the nagging of the ego out of it, and, and all that crappy meaning that society thrusts onto receiving of like, because truthfully, I resented the meal trains for a while, because I was like, if I'm receiving a meal train, it means someone is dying, which is was a fact. And I'm like, we only right. receive meal trains when someone is dying, or in the hospital, or when we're not able to do it ourselves. And so reading your book, it, it literally opened my eyes to this alternative perspective of like what would have happened if I had just looked into their eyes and said, thank you, as opposed to literally fleeing the kitchen every time somebody brought another casserole over. Um, And and that was my, part of it was being like a sullen teenager, but I think part of it too was this is a a physical, scented, aromatic reminder in the oven Mm -hmm. that someone I love is in the process of dying.
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective because my, um, my first experience, my first like conscious experience of meal trains, like qua meal trains, like identified as such was around birth. Um, so I have a much different, like original origin story for that in my life. Yeah. It's interesting to get that kind of balancing perspective. And, and I, it highlights to me too, like, I try to focus on, um, that idea of like how you show up for others being so informed by being shown up for, and that, you know, picture of you as kind of a sullen teenager and just resenting that this was needed, not because maybe you were helpless, but because it meant this terrible event was taking place. It was like a reminder of that. Usually shouldn't mean don't show up for those people. And I hope would more mean show up and allow it to just be however it is like somebody may be you know resentful of it um and I don't mean this as like permission to to sort of bulldoze over people's mood because I think it's really important to be responsive to that but just allow it to be how it is like recognize that yeah for me this was a really powerful reminder that this thing was happening but we still needed the food
0: oh sure I came down and ate it but like at 10 p.m exactly
1: (laughs) Yeah, If you're the show upper in that situation, remember that it, this could land all kinds of different ways for people.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think you touched on something important there because it was never about the casserole itself or the human bringing the casserole. It was, I hate that this is happening. The larger mm-hmm. circumstance of my mother is dying. Um, and yeah. it was not something that anybody could change. And so everything that happened that was out of the ordinary was a reminder of that. Um, and so, mm-hmm. It's, it was just so interesting reading your book because it was like, it was, and I don't know if you intended to do this, but it was actively taking that like bitter sting out of meal trains in my brain. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to see this so differently if, and when the occasion for a meal train happens again. Um, and and I just thought that was so incredibly powerful. And I, I kind of want to shift to your chapter on food for solace um, because you've got a couple of really wise things in here. And it's such a, so grief growers, if you haven't read this book, it's called extra helping and it's a combination cookbook, but also musings on why we need food from others or receiving food from others, giving food from others. Uh, for different occasions. And so there's ones for solace, there's ones for illness, there's ones for birth, there's ones for celebration, there's ones for large groups, which I thought was really neat. I didn't even think of that, but that was probably my favorite chapter. Um, But uh, there's this beautiful like stuff I just never would have thought of that way that you included in your book down to when you were talking about food for solace, you said it, it feels so inappropriate to bring something as beautiful as a cake or like an ornately prepared salad or something, because sometimes beauty and something that's pretty is so painful to look at when you've lost so much. And so food in this place should be nourishing and have a lot of like depth and breadth to it. But like something that's mockingly beautiful is almost painful to see. And I was like, I've never thought of food In relation to grief that way and yet the things that so many people send are like the cakes and the pies and the cupcakes and the donuts and Mm -hmm. and stuff when it's like how can life possibly be sweet anymore and I was like oh my god she thought of that and wow like I just had so many mind-blowing moments
1: well I obviously I am a big geek about this kind of stuff like I really really think about it um but I'm, I'm re- it's just really um, gratifying to hear that, that you zeroed in on that because yeah, it, I I had a really uh, great teacher when I was um, a, a new mom who's an herbalist, and she introduced me to all kinds of uh other, you know, people that she had learned from. And the one of the strongest threads that came out of that for me was this idea of like balancing out or antidote kind of um way of looking at nutrition. What what would um like what's the, the the counterbalance on the other side of the scale that would kind of even things out for people? And one of your prep questions for the interview was like what in your lost story what what drew you back or what anchored you or what you know what brought you back to your feet in a sense? And for me, food was such a natural place to look for that um, because it's such an immediate, constant, ever present. If you get through it, you must have eaten something like you're, you're eating to sustain life. Everybody's doing it every day. So it's the easiest place to start to look for those kinds of balancing things because it's something you have to do if you're going to stay around, you know, through the grief experience or the birth experience or the moving experience or whatever it is, you're, you're going to need to eat. So it's, it's an opportunity several times a day to look for balance and look for, um, you know, something that resonates in a particular kind of way. And, um, yeah, I just love that you zeroed in on that. That's great.
0: I wonder if we can talk about common, uh, meal train or food delivery blunders, because one of my favorite stories was from the moving chapter where you brought a lasagna to somebody who just moved in, but they had no idea where they packed the plates or the silverware. (laughs) And so they ate it out of little like coffee cups. (laughs) Once they figured out how to use the oven, which is like new house, new oven, don't know how to do it. And these seem, these seem so like hashtag first world problems, but also you have these other chapters of like, you know, bringing, bringing a place setting and a fork or a flower and a vase or something to somebody who's in the hospital and cannot leave. And so these small little things that make the experience better. And then the small little things that like, if you think of this, you're really going to save the day.
1: Uh, Well, I would say the first, when you said blunders, the first thing that comes to mind is soup in the floor mats of my car. Like good containers are really the place to, to start because spilling things in your car on the subway or, you know, on the dog, those are things you definitely want to avoid like arriving with half as much soup as you left your house with. Um, So I really feel like a little arsenal of, it doesn't have to be fancy stuff, uh, mason jars, which you can get, Uh, on the cheap, pretty much anywhere. Um, Coming all these different sizes have really secure lids and are a great way to transport things. So I think that just a basic set of equipment there is really important um, to avoid my, my least favorite blender, which is spilling something. And then I, I really feel like just being curious and open um, is a really valuable way to avoid a misstep or an overstep. One of the things that's changed since I first came into the meal train game is that there are now online tools where you can, you know, register the family or the person that's receiving. And those, although I tend to favor human interaction over electronic, the advantage of those to me is that it's much easier to fill out a form that kind of outlines no dairy hate, you know, green beans, all those kinds of things than it is to communicate that face-to-face, kind of getting back to that idea of like, you don't want to burden people and you don't want people to know what your actual needs are because, you know, of some idea you have about how independent and strong you need to be. It's much easier to fill that out on a form. Um, Lacking that, if somebody hasn't done that, if you're participating in feeding someone, to just ask, like, what are you sick of? What are you craving? Because I feel like craving is a um, I think I write something some about that in the book like appetite and craving are really powerful to teachers in terms of healing and restoring balance what your body is calling out for and we're it's just drummed out of us you know in, in as babies we have it and then over the course of a lifetime where you're exposed to diet culture and nutritional theories and fads and um, shoulds and shouldn'ts and all these kinds of things we lose that connection, and illness and crisis, like grief are um very revealing. they kind of peel the layers back, and what your body is just calling out for is usually a really pure signal um, for something that will balance things out and will you know support or restore the person so talking to people about that, if you have the kind of relationship where you can do that, like what are you what are you craving and that carries over to like not just nutritionally, but just situationally, because there's, I'm obviously I'm a food nerd, but, um, and I should emphasize, I'm a home cook food nerd. I'm not like a trained chef, any kind of thing like that. Um, But any kind of help that you're offering, if you approach it with curiosity and if you're, if you make it okay for someone to talk about what they really need or what they really want then you've really moved the needle, like not just for that person, but I feel like collectively for all of us, we have these weird notions about privacy and like you were referencing sort of self-responsibility. And what ends up happening is that people go through life with no roadmap for how you handle grief or how you handle, you know, a grave illness, because it's all like it's all sealed over. It's all handled in where we think privacy should be. And we don't culturally give people much of a roadmap for, you know, we don't have a lot of ritual, like common, commonly held ritual around um, how to process grief personally, or how to respond to someone who's going through grief, because we've, we've kind of tucked that all away. Um, So if you can approach that with some kind of curiosity, some kind of like make it okay for the person to say to you, I am out of clean underwear, you know, or, Whatever it is, um, I had a, my college roommate um, lost her husband uh, a few years ago, and I, I we live very far apart now, so it wasn't like I could show up with casserole. Um, but I said, like, what's what's the thing that you can't ask like the people who are in your daily life? Like, what is the thing that is driving you nuts? And she wanted to make cookies with her son, and she didn't have some essential piece of baking equipment, and she just felt ridiculous. You know, all the people who had a ringside seat at her loss, saying to them, can you get me, you know, a set of cookie scoops or a roll of parchment paper or whatever. And I was able to send that to her and felt, you know, I was thousands of miles away, but I felt like I was actually offering something and she received something that she really needed. So I feel like those kind of dynamics, we we don't, we don't train, uh, we don't train people to come up in a tradition where that's understood. And so that's, that's really where I like to urge people forward.
0: That's really wise, because you write in the book about this question that you hate the most, which is, please let me know if there's anything I can do, oh. and I also hate this question, <laughs> and I think every single person listening is like, "I would kill someone to never hear that question again, like <laughs> that's the stakes I would do if nobody ever asked me that ever again, because Lord knows what we actually want in the yeah. aftermath of Lord's, or like who are we to start delegating tasks to people who've just offered themselves up um and and I love that you're your mission here is like, ask the pointed questions. What are you craving? If you could have anything to eat in the world right now, what would that be? Or if you could have, you know, anything in this, anything in this moment that you can't share with your inner Mm -hmm. circle or your friends, clean underwear, deodorant, toilet paper. I loved in the back of the book, you had like a checklist of like fun things to say. I'm on my way to the store. I'm, I'm passing by your house on the way home. Can I pick you up toothpaste attire you know any of these things that <laughs> that people might need but may not be willing to admit and you're like I'm already here this is already helpful to me so allow it to be helpful to you as well and like I know, love like, the idea of a tire the I'm, attire. I can you
1: bring me a whole tire <laughs> my, my life goal is now to have someone say yes can you bring me an r17 uh-huh. whatever like <laughs>
0: The I was yeah. thinking in my brain, I'm like, what department is the exact opposite of toothpaste <laughs> geographically in the store? Is like, oh, they put the tires really far away from like the shampoo yeah. and the bath products. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I went that far, but I guess cat litter might be more appropriate. But that, that just struck me. Um, yes. And I, I kind of want to um, shift conversation into... Being ill or unwell or grieving, and there's a lot of conversation, especially as you mentioned uh, diet culture, of like food as a healing cure. And so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of room for what I lovingly and dreadfully like to call food politics to Mm -hmm. show up in the basket that gets brought to the table of like, you told me you're craving this, but I think you should really Mm. have this Mm. to, to help you with chemo, to cure your cancer, to help you with your heart arrhythmia, to help you sleep at night, like whatever it is. And so people are putting all kinds of weird ingredients and vegetables and herbs and stuff in your food. And you're like, I just really want like, italian wedding soup with meatballs in it like that's what i really want um and i i underline this uh line on page four people are helped by what they perceive as helpful and i literally doodled next to it this is not the place for food politics this is a small <laughs> gesture of exactly what they want yeah
1: yeah that's i really feel pretty strongly about that and i used to work as a counselor for new moms and but that's a territory where you get a lot of very helpful opinion um, that just isn't terrifically helpful. And certainly watching my sister go through um, cancer, another place where everybody's got a story about what they think is going to be great um, or make the difference for you. And it just, if you have a relationship with someone where that kind of information is actually wanted, there's no mystery about it. You'll know because they'll say, can you help me figure out what I should do? For this. If they haven't said that, odds are so high that it's not the right time to offer up whatever you think is going to be the cure. Just find out what they want and give them what they want. Um because it's just it's just not that it will it, if if it's the time you'll know because it'll be really clear. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And just the sense of you wrote in the chapter about illness if you're feeding a patient, feed that patient as opposed to somebody else that you knew who went through chemo or somebody else that you knew uh, who had kids and craved X, Y, Z. Um, I wonder if you can speak a little bit to how food, and this is a leading question, but how food has the power to give us our humanity back. Because I think, especially with, you know, the emergence of fast food or, I eat most of my meals standing up uh, and a lot of other, like I'm just constantly rushing somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. The the prospect of eating food in a, in a place where I really feel like I need it, as opposed to food as an obligation that I need to consume in order to stay alive. Um, just these small touches that can give us our humanity back when we feel like we're not at our best, or maybe we're in a place where we're feeling inhuman like when we're grieving or when we're ill or when uh, we've just given birth to a tiny human and we're like, I'm not sure that I'm entirely human right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you think about those tiny humans, they come out pre-programmed to slither up the belly and find the source. Like appetite is the first, the first impulse. So it's, you can, you know, you could get a whatever number of calories someone determines you need in order to stay alive and functional, you could get a little packet every day that had those in it and just squeeze it down the gullet and you would stay alive. But everything else about food, it's smell, it's the way it, you know, the texture, the way it looks, where it came from. There's so many places in it that are so, the, both evocative of like things that have happened to you before, you know, where you ate it before, who first made it for you um, any kind of sense memory like that. And also an opportunity for connection. Like one of my favorite meditations is, you know, when I'm feeling sort of put upon by making food just from myself or my family or to kind of stop and connect to where it came from. You know, somebody grew it, somebody picked it, somebody put it in a box. Like, it's a, it's a really natural place to find connection to the earth, to other people, to the cultures that, you know, that particular food comes from. Um, it's, and it's, it comes up several times a day, you know, it, it, you, you have endless, pretty much endless opportunity to make those kinds of connections. Um, so I think that's, that's part of the the value there is that like we're animals. So we're programmed in a certain kind of way to respond to smell and flavor and um, you know the the right color berry, and um, tapping into that is um, is really restorative. Um, and now I've talked for a full minute, and I don't remember what your question
0: was. <laughs> <laughs> the The question was about how food has the power to give us our humanity back. But that's okay. funny because as you were talking, I got this visual of like roots going back down into the ground because yeah. I think a lot of the source of inhuman feeling is feeling disconnected. And so to reconnect with where food comes from, who made it, what part of the world it's from, the dirt it was grown in, the sunshine it saw, even like the planes, trains, and automobiles that got it to where we got it from, um, is almost like, okay, we're all doing this. We're all eating things around the world. And so it, it just
1: feels so much more human of an experience. And the other thing, thank you for reminding me of the original question. Oh, sure. <laughs> the other thing was that struck me at the time um, What that you asked it was this idea uh, that we talked a little bit about of illness and grief and all those sort of major life events. That There's that feeling that you've kind of um, slipped into this alternate universe. You've You've left the regular world. And the rest of the world is going on without you you know, paying its bills and catching buses and laughing at YouTube videos. And you're, you're in this, like behind this pane of glass watching this happen um, and the getting back to that idea of like the antidote or the counterbalance to eating, standing up at the counter just to keep yourself going or to I'm caregiving for this person. So I've got to call the doctor, make the, you know, get the make sure the car's gassed up. Uh, do the laundry, and oh, they need something to eat. So let me just put something on a tray and, and drop it off in the room while I go off to do this other thing. It can become this checklist item. I need to eat enough to keep going. I need to give that person enough calories to keep going. And in, and it can be instead a real opportunity to connect. Like um, eating in community with other people is one of the first things that kind of falls by the wayside if you have a, a grave illness or you know you're eating off a tray in your bed or you're in the hospital or whatever and that idea of like when the times that i sat with my sister while she was eating even though there were a thousand things that needed to be needed to be done um and that i could have been doing those are some of my like favorite memories of the time that we spent together when she was um when she was ill were the times that i just sat down with her like this isn't a checklist item this is an actual opportunity <laughs> to connect Um, so that I think that if you can root yourself a little bit in that idea, even though caregiving is, it's, you know, it's turns your life upside down and shakes it by the cuffs um, anytime that you can, even if it's just for yourself, even if it's just, um, instead of standing at the counter and shoveling this thing down, what could I do to make this like actually pleasant and restorative for myself? Like I could sit down, (laughs) I could put it on a plate. I could just, excuse me, think for a moment. I could just think for a moment about where it came from or, you know, something like that. So that's, that to me, that's another way that it connects to restoring humanity.
0: I love that. And that was one of my, I have so many favorite parts in your book, but that was one of my favorite parts in your book too, is where you were talking about, there's so much reclaiming of humanity when we eat with somebody who cannot leave the bed. Mm-hmm. because there's such um a community experience in you know either feeding someone if they cannot feed themselves or if they can feed themselves asking questions or sharing stories or can you pass the salt shaker or kind of whatever it is even if it's for like 15 minutes even if the meal is a smoothie like there's there's just there's a presence there that's absent when a nurse comes in, drops a tray and leaves Mm -hmm. to visit her next patient. And like, this is not a gripe on nurses. They have schedules just like we do, but I imagine there's such a feeling of inhumanness or loneliness or isolation that comes from not being able to do something as human as eating in the presence of other humans.
1: Yeah. And that sense of isolation, I mean, more than anything, obviously I wrote a book with recipes in it, so it was oriented around food, but it's really that idea of isolation that, I'm hoping to balance out or address giving people a place to start. Um, For me, food is the simplest, you know, food's my love language. So that's the easiest place to start, but it can be just about anything. um, Just a place to begin knitting those little connections back up again, because all of these experiences can be isolating and can have that feeling of like, I'm the only one who's ever gone through this or nobody else could possibly understand. Um, So it's great to have ways to reestablish um community basically
0: yes and i underlined this phrase in the front of your book that said uh the notion of care and I was like, oh, this is what this book is about. Like, yeah, it's full of recipes. And like, holy crap, some of them are less than four steps, which is right up my alley. I'm like, if it's more than four, I can't handle it. But everything else, I'm like underlining and dog-earing pages and, and, um, and things like that. But there was this phrase of the notion of care. And I was like, this is what this book is about. It's people showing up and not necessarily the quality of the food or even the presentation of that food, even though we've spoken a little bit about that in this interview, but just the showing up and being present. Um, And on that topic of isolation, I don't know if I can flip to it. If you'll give me a moment, I think I can find it. Um, There was this beautiful and heartbreaking thing that you wrote about showing up versus not as a friend to somebody who's grieving. And it says, A friend who says, I don't know what to say, but I'm here, offers a live connection. A friend who is mysteriously absent is an additional drain on a person who can ill afford more sorrow. And I got chills when I read that because even if I didn't want people to show up with casseroles, Mm -hmm. I knew they were showing up. And it, there's there's a very obvious distinction between who shows up and who does not in the aftermath of loss. And then there's very distinct feelings that get assigned to who shows up and who does not
1: in the aftermath of loss. Yeah, that was why I kind of underlined that it doesn't have to be food. But food mm-hmm. is just, the, for me, it seems like the easiest because there's no, like, I wonder if they need something to eat. Everybody needs something to eat. So you don't have to, you could stop wondering. They need something to eat. Um, but really just giving people a place to, like, a little bridge to get over that idea of like, Oh God, I don't know. What, I don't know what I would say. I can't, or the, the other one I hate besides, um, let me know if there's anything I can do is I can't imagine what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you can, uh, you just don't want to, which is fine. You know, that's fine, but it's not that you can't. Um, but we let all this sort of lack of, um, education or, um, tradition around how to respond, paralyze us. And then we're like, I, yeah, I don't want to do the wrong thing. So I'm just going to do nothing. Um, And people have a really long memory for that feeling of isolation, that feeling of being forgotten or overlooked or, you know, uh, just left alone. And it it does make a big difference if you can just say, and, and you also, the other thing is you don't have to do it right away. There's generally speaking in a crisis, there's tons of people who show up in the immediate time around that it's later. And as I'm sure, you know, like the arc of grief is so long. Mm-hmm. So it, it, reach out, establish, like, I'm here. I haven't forgotten about you. And then, especially if this person is a little bit resistant or doesn't seem to want it, don't take that as gospel and like this enduring position that this person has that they don't want. I, well, I tried, but she said she didn't want anything. So come back because I guarantee in a week or two weeks or a month, that that feeling will change. I mean, I know it's a, it's a year, uh, this Wednesday since I lost my mom, it's a year, you know, by, by most people's standards, uh, you know, the statute is up, but the days it, it can change from sunup to sundown. It can change from Monday to Thursday. It can change from April to May. It just keeps morphing and changing. And so there's almost always a time when it's going to be welcome. Even if the first person's first response has been resistance, Circle back and just say, you know, like like we're saying, I've got this extra tire (laughs) (laughs) in the back of my car. (laughs) I'll have the tire. Do you want the tire now? Um, Just trust that it will change. And that was that's another thing that I've learned really powerfully from going through my own um, muck in life is it. It's not a static thing. Your grief is not, you know, banana flavored and three by three. And that's how it is from the time it hits you until you quote unquote move on. It's a constantly changing, morphing, shifting thing. So there will always be a time that comes around later um, where when somebody might be more receptive. So just keep showing up.
0: Yeah, because more than that, more than the whether or not the tire is actually useful, it's like I haven't forgotten you.
1: Right.
0: Out of like I'm still thinking of you and aware that this has changed your life. Uh, and I'm ready to show up for you. Um, I want to share a story with you about a food that reminds me of my mom and then a time years later when I had something similar and I was literally transported back to a memory with her. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you have a story like that to share also, and we can kind of do a story swap here to wrap up our conversation. Sure. Um, so I, my mom, her favorite food in the world was angel food cake. With fresh strawberries and whipped cream. And oh. in the summers, I mean, we'd make it out of a box. It wasn't like a, I don't think any of us knew how to make meringue or, or whip egg whites or anything. Like, I don't even know if you whip egg whites
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, or whisk them or
0: something. But yeah. we always made the kind in the box. And our family were not big drinkers growing up, but there was always a wine bottle in the kitchen to turn the pan upside down on mm-hmm. uh, as it cooled. So you get that, you know, the spring form pan on there. And um, I remember for many, many years, always in the summers when the strawberries would start to come out, my mom would make angel food cake probably twice a month for three or four months. And so we'd always have it in the house and she'd sit on the back porch and eat it um, on little plates, on big plates, uh, you know, on napkins and stuff until it was gone. And then we'd make it again. And um, after she died, I don't think I had angel food cake Again, and it didn't really register with me. It was kind of one of those foods that I didn't notice vanished with her death. Mm -hmm. And then a couple years later, probably four or five years later, I was on a trip in Seattle, and the dessert menu had uh, a meringue kind of strawberry dessert on it. And I'm normally like the world's biggest chocoholic. And I, all I want to eat is like the giant fudge volcano thing that explodes when it comes to the table. <laughs> and, um, for some reason that night I, I picked the meringue. And as soon as I like broke into that little crust on the outside, I put it into my mouth. And the person that I was with immediately saw my face change and they were like, Whoa, what was that? And I was like, they literally just brought my mom to the table." Mm -hmm. And it was the coolest, I get chills telling the story now, but it was the coolest thing. And I, we went back like two days later and did the same thing. We got the same exact meal over again because I was like, I want to have that experience one more time because it was a memory unlocked by food that I forgot I lost because I literally closed my eyes and I was sitting on the back porch with my mother again and we were eating box angel food cake in the middle of the summer. And, um, oh my word. And for anyone who doesn't believe in the power of food. I'm like, Oh, I think you just haven't had a memory unlocking experience with food.
1: What yet. Treasure that is That is such a beautiful story. Um, I'm laughing. It's not a food memory, but um, one of my mom's uh, just rituals of self-care was she used to take a bubble bath at the end of the work day
0: mm-hmm.
1: and always use this particular kind of bubble bath. And again, I had completely, I mean, I obviously remember that she was very committed to the bath, but I could, kind of had forgotten about this particular bath product. And after she died, my sister, my, my surviving sister bought us each a bottle of this bubble bath that my mother used to use. And she sent me a bottle of it. And she said, I don't know if I believed in sense memory before, but Vitabath made me a believer. <laughs> we took the cap off of that and it was like, whoosh, just decades back, boom. Right back there. And we would all like sit by the side of the bath and like talk to her and stuff. Like so it was just like this really complex, nuanced memory. But that's what it's kind of what we were talking about before that smell and flavor and all those things are so powerful. They have they're so much stronger than cognition and you know, all our ideas about stuff. It just boom sucks you right back to that moment which is why I think you know that's where so much of the value lays in those. My mom, I live in, in uh, uh, rural Western Massachusetts. So um, we used to walk in the woods a lot. I still walk in the woods a lot. And she in the wintertime, she would bring an orange and we would peel the, this is before you could get, you know, sumo tangerines and clementines, whatever, it's just an orange, just a dopey navel orange. But she always brought an orange when we went hiking and in, um, in especially in the winter. So that feeling of like, Tearing into the rind and the you know those oils, those smells that come up Mm -hmm. when you do that, and just feeling that um, the the sort of cool, tart, sweet, juicy orange in your mouth as you're surrounded by the snow and the trees and everything. I still love to to do that. Um, Even if I'm you know walking by myself in the woods, I love having an orange in my pocket.
0: Yeah, literally just handling it, that hands-on, and then the oils come out of the top and yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. I love, I love ending on that note um, because it's just a a beautiful, and again, like you said, a powerful reminder that that food and the things we literally put into our bodies can also bring these memories
1: out of our brains, out of our I mean, if you think about it, your body is made of that angel food cake. You are composed of that. (laughs) So it's like, it's like this calling up this thing. The reason it resonates is you, you, you grew on that, you know, your cells were made of that and your bones and your teeth and everything like it's in there. So it has this like deep echoing feeling, which is just, that's a beautiful story. Thank you. Oh, sure.
0: it's like, yeah. And there's, uh, there's the phrase that's coming to me as I am composed of this. And <laughs> it's like, when you hear a song that you haven't heard in 10 or 15 years, you're like, Oh, yeah. I know this song. I've heard this before. And there's like a recognition of, of this belongs to me in some way this has built me in some way. And that, I mean, even echoing back to handling an orange in the cold weather mm-hmm. and breaking into that, that peel in the cold weather—is Yeah. Cause I smelled that as soon as you started talking about it, I said, I know what cold smells like. I live in Chicago. I yeah. also know what orange smells like and to put them together. It's just like so sharp and bright and almost like crystal. And I was like, Oh, I know exactly what that smells like. Yeah. Um, Oh my gosh, that's so gorgeous. Janet, thank you so much for joining us on Coming Back. And before we sign off, please let people know where they can find you and where they can read your book, Extra Helping, as well as if there's any uh, recipes or things you have available online.
1: Sure. Um, so recipes and other content are always available on my website, which is a raisin and a And the book, uh, Extra Helping, was published by Roost. So it's really available, as they say, wherever books are sold.
0: And it's so cool, Grief Growers. It has these neat little paper cut illustrations all over the inside.
1: Um, So I just
0: loved it. It was such a fun book to read both for the writing and for the the illustrations. And I told somebody today right before we jumped on the mic, I said, what's funny is it's not a traditional book and that there's not pictures of every dish, but because of the way she describes them,
1: there don't need to be. Yeah, I didn't want people to be too wedded to like some picture of how things needed to come out. And Anna Bronis, who did the illustrations, did such a beautiful job. Um, of really creating this kind of homey comfortable uh, uh, just environment for the the recipes to live in so I really it was a great partnership yes
0: yes so Janet thank you so much for coming on coming back and sharing your uh, experience with grief and food and caregiving and memories with us
1: well thank you so much for having me and I really appreciate that you're creating this space for people to really think deeply about it I think it's so valuable and so rare so, thank you <laughs>
0: So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Janet Richelsbach for coming on to talk about the connection between grief, food, and the beautiful notion of care. I absolutely loved reading Extra Helping, and grief growers, I hope you'll pick up a copy for your kitchens, too. You can find Extra Helping as well as a bunch of other recipes and thoughts on care at Janet's site called a raisin and a And of course, you can find that link in the show notes. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. You'll instantly unlock access to weekly grief journaling prompts and monthly live grief support calls with me. Just a heads up that our next call is happening Monday, February 17th at 7pm Central Time. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts,
1: Spotify, Google Podcasts, and please tell a friend about Coming Back.